Welcome to the Daniel Workman Show. It is yours truly coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out West. Good morning into all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this Monday, October the 7th. Hope you had a great weekend. Mine was a good weekend. It, it, it felt like it wasn't much of a weekend just because of uh, a lot of soccer going on. Uh, kids, games, in and out of town. But it was a fun weekend. It was definitely a fun weekend. And, um, you know, I'd, I don't know that you can ever have too much fun or, or, or too much soccer. So uh, from, from our standpoint in our in our household, it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was uh, it was a good time. Uh, but back to the grind this Monday morning. Um, yesterday, uh, Jill Ellis finished her tenure as the head coach the manager of the U.S. women's national team. And I wanted to start off the show uh, talking about her tenure and her legacy. If you look at a Jill Ellis coach team, she won back-to-back World Cups. A lot of success. One of the things going forward is I feel that the next coach um, has an opportunity to build on her legacy and help us from a collective standpoint. And by that, I mean uh, creating a system that doesn't just rely on the incredible talents that we have, but helps kind of bring all of those talents to together and leverage the collective. And it's more of a system, you know, conversation than a, um, than a, than a conversation of, you know, bad locker room or any of that matter. As a matter of fact, I think Jill Ellis is, big legacy and I think one of the things that you can look at this summer even uh, that that it really really shown uh, through this summer was her personal management skills she is one of the best in the world at creating a a camaraderie uh, a sense of team unity, team spirit, and you could see it with uh, the the ladies on the team, the ladies on the field, the ladies uh, on the bench. Um, and you don't win back to back World Cups if you are not able to manage people. And um, she was. That that's probably her greatest legacy was her ability to manage people. Uh, it's really difficult to motivate people and keep being being able to motivate them um, for that long, and to to do it for that long to have that much success 
even though tactically I felt like we could be a lot better and even more dominant uh, from a from a style of play standpoint, there's there's no arguing her ability to manage people, and that that really is the biggest part of her legacy, and it's one that I think she should walk away with being very proud of her her tenure with the federation uh, as the uh, as the head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team. And, and I think when you look at going forward, where do we go? Where, where do you take a legacy that's won? And for her, the, you know, the winning, obviously, it makes it sweeter. The winning, obviously, um, builds on her, her, her legacy and her tenure. Having that ability to say, hey, look, we went back-to-back World Cups, etc. But all of that to say... I you know obviously you have to win to get the plaudits you have to win to 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 get the 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 kudos etc but when you when you look when you look at the players when you talk to the players when you read their comments you can you can sense that um you know her ability to manage people was was critical to 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 their having the ability to to attain that success and um that is that's a legacy that's going to live on how does the next head coach you know people look at and i don't want to be the the person that follows the legend and and in a lot of times in a lot of cases that's true there's no doubt i mean it, it's very difficult the the one caveat i would say is that i really think there's a real opportunity uh for someone you know who's a good you know uh manager of people but someone who is very good from a tactician standpoint very good from a system of play uh game model standpoint and I think that there's a there's a an area of the women's program uh, that could see some significant improvement uh, in terms of the way the collective plays. What we saw this summer was more of a group of individuals, and when they came up against teams that had a collective identity, a a system of play there was some struggle. Um, Spain's a game that I, I go back to a lot. Um, Spain is still building their women's program, but they are a, a nation on the rise. And they had a system of play that caused uh, this U.S. women's national team a lot of fits. And you can make the argument that Spain was a little hard done by with, with some calls in that match that really turned turn the match in the the u.s women's national team's favor um and allowed them to get through but that was an example it was a microcosm of what we're talking about a little bit of uh, of you know better collective play and then you get in those moments um maybe we don't don't struggle as much um and you know, when you have such gifted players um, that, you know, 
you, you talk to anyone that's around this team that knows the players that are in the player pool, they, they will tell you that we're, we're probably 30 deep. Uh, that's a good problem to have. Um, it's, a, it's a really nice problem to have. Maybe it's a little unfortunate for some of those who, who you know, are in that 25 to 30 range and really wish they could break in. But um, it's nice to be a country that has that kind of, of uh, you know, individual talent available. We certainly don't have it on the men's side. We don't even have uh, enough for a 23-man roster on the men's side of, of quality talent. So on the women's side, having, you know, 30, 30 players that are really good enough for the world stage is a great problem to have. Now the next challenge to me, and, and I look at really more as an opportunity, is what can the next manager, the next head coach of this women's national team, what could they bring to the table for, for the collective that, that gives our individual players the platform to shine even bigger and even better uh, on the global stage, make, maybe make the game a little bit easier for our players where there's not so much reliance on an individual performance um, by being able to, to do a little bit better job from a system standpoint in the way that we play organization um, both with and without the ball. But overall, when you look at Jill, Jill Ellis and her legacy, she, she, she didn't leave a lot of places to go uh, for improvement. Um, you saw under under her leadership, the women's national team continued to to rise in prominence in in the minds of uh, the American soccer fans. Uh, revenues to the federation um, continued to grow under her tenure. So for all of those uh, in the um, you know leadership positions within the U.S. Soccer Federation that are so focused on money over the sport, uh, even in that column, she succeeded. Uh, and, and did a good job by leading a successful program that continued to rise in popularity. Um, and again, her, her personal management, um, you know, skills and, and gifts and talents and strengths really shown through whenever you're able to lead uh, a team, especially a team that had a, a lot of personalities, probably the, the program uh, on the women's side in the world that has the most flamboyant, uh, loud, confident, uh, cocky, um, attitudes. And I use all of those adjectives in a positive way. I, I love that. I love that our players are bold and uh, courageous and daring and really sure of themselves. Um, you have to have all of those traits to be the best. Um, there is no Michael Jordan without those tendencies. Um, the other day I was, I was looking at something on Twitter and a clip came up and it was MJ at the foul line. And, you know, he's talking trash to a player and the player couldn't make free throws very well. And so he's messing with him. He said, Hey, watch this. I'm going to take my next free throw with my eyes closed. Middle of a game, NBA game, regular season game. And 
sure enough, MJ steps up to the line, making fun of the player that can't make his free throws, closes his eyes, shoots it, and makes it. That's the kind of bold, brash confidence that you got to have to reach the top level. And our 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 players thrive uh, on that with our U.S. Women's National Team. And Jill Ellis was a big part of creating that culture to say, look, believe in yourself. You are the best in the world. Let's go do this. And and that really is the legacy, I think, that, you know, uh, will carry on for a while and and it's important for the next manager the next head coach of the u.s women's national team to uh to encourage that and continue to build on that and so she deserves all the credits all the plaudits all of the accolades um that you can throw her way uh, as she walks off into the sunset uh, as her tenure uh, as the head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team comes to a close yesterday, 1-1 draw. And, um, you know, it's an end of an era. And now there's uh, excitement as everyone looks ahead to uh, where we go from here, obviously next summer, um, an immediate challenge for this next head coach of the women's national team um, as all eyes will be on the Olympics and uh, to see, uh, see, see how things progress uh, over the next uh, nine months or so. So congratulations to Jill and uh, to her family. Her legacy uh, is cemented uh, with the U S women's national team and uh, and all of her work so kudos to her our sponsor this half hour is ducktick brand d-u-k-t-i-g brand.com if you have not gone and shopped at ducktick brand.com yet you owe it to yourself to do it and use the promo code dw show to get 10 percent off of your next order you will not regret it we will be right back after this with jeremy handler Joining us, Jeremy Handler. He is a girls' DA coach with Salvo SC and an assistant coach with Minneapolis City SC. Jeremy, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. We are excited to have uh, have a chance to talk to you and uh, pick your brain about soccer and and your thoughts on coaching and development, etc. What what was your origins? What is your origin story? Your connecting point uh, with a game? Where did you fall in love with a game, and and why did you want to to stay involved with a game as a coach? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up playing like so many people played uh, competitively through high school. As I was going to college, I was okay, not great. I could have been an okay D3 level player, but had uh, had a lot of injury issues. So ended up going to uh, Ohio State because I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Played a little bit of the club team there, but mostly started coaching when I was 19 because I just kind of realized that obviously my future as a player was relatively limited and I was always pretty mediocre athletically, but understood the game at a pretty high level. So I decided to give it a shot and then uh, just really fell in love with that aspect of it and the impact I was able to make on on players' lives and just kind of ran with it from there and decided about middle of my junior year of college, and I was trying to decide what to do for a career and I was putting more time on my coaching anything else. I was like, why don't I just do this? And uh, ran with it from there, applied for grad assistantships after college, managed to land one at a place with a men's program at Augsburg University, which is in Minneapolis. So I moved out to Minneapolis about six years ago, and then I've just kind of kept getting different jobs and roles here. So I've just stuck around ever since. So growing up in Ohio and playing, developing in Ohio, how would you compare the the soccer scene in Ohio to what you experience there in Minneapolis? I think overall it's a little bit stronger relative to size of areas and that I think in I mean Minnesota hockey hockey is such a large influence and I feel like there's more of an emphasis on the multi-sport aspects. So you have a lot of kids that maybe play two or three different sports and especially just disappear over the winter. And then, therefore, are sacrificing actually getting really good at any of them. So, I think in Minnesota, you end up having a lot of players that are good athletically, but maybe soccer-wise are still a little bit rough because simply there's not enough time just put into soccer specifically. And then also the, the length of the winters and some of the facility limitations and amount you can really be outside year round i think also play a part especially in the tactical development because so much of your training is just in little small pieces of space for half the year do you think in order for a place like uh minnesota um you know with you know even minneapolis city sc if this were an open system year round obviously weather is is going to be like you know northern parts of, of europe even iceland uh in terms of you know some of the weather conditions etc uh do you think that in order for for soccer to really be successful in an, in an open system type of format that there would be a lot of infrastructure build outs uh, and investments that would need to take place beyond the scope of where things are now yeah to an extent so i mean we have the thing that was jarring a good way to me when i moved to minneapolis was that in columbus all the indoor spaces that we had are just like little like 66 77 maybe 88 max but the winters aren't as harsh or as long. So you just kind of do that over the winter. And then you just get back outside in about March, Minnesota, there's a bunch of domes and full field indoor fields available. 
uh, just most of the time they're booked up. I mean, the way the clubs have to do it just for their bottom line is jam six teams onto a field each hour. So you're training a sixth of a field or an eighth of a field or whatever, just so they're not, they're not spending too much money. So, I mean, if you're talking open system, I think the infrastructure exists. I think if there was, if there are more clubs with the fiscal incentive to develop players to the max potential, instead of just getting as many kids into the program as possible and collecting registration fees, then they'd have more of an incentive to spend more money to give those players more space. How, you know, you, you, you mentioned a couple times uh, about in, the indoor space and some of the limitations, the size of the training space. When you're looking at training a team, developing players, developing a philosophy of play, how important is it for you as a coach with your personal coaching philosophy to have either maybe you know, a half of a field available for your practice or a full field for that matter available for your practice versus, you know, a sixth of a field or an eighth of a field. And, and do you need, or do you want that field space, you know, every training session, or is this something where you just, you know, you need a day or two here or there to, to spread out and kind of, you know, maybe work on some things like how important is the field space and the way that you view you know, your job and how does that tie into your personal coaching philosophy? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, my personal coach philosophy is based really heavily on, I mean, game realistic sessions. So you got to start with your game model and the way that you want to play and then work back to break that down into how you're going to train, training in a way that you're not going to play or not creating realistic pictures seems just counterproductive or a waste of time to me. So for me, I think that you can, you can teach things that you need to in small spaces and doses. So you can break down the game into really small pieces and still paint realistic pictures to an extent. So I don't think, I mean, I'm not going to go to my club and demand, yeah, I need a, I need a, at least a half of a field every single session over the winter. But if once, if I'm training four times a week, let's say it's, uh, I mean, cause I'm obviously I'm a coaching the DA. If I'm training four times a week. If I only have ever a six of a field or a core of a field to train my team, I can't cover all the things tactically that I need to be able to do. So if a couple times a week, I'm stuck in a smaller space and it's more small sided games and rondos and possession games and things like that, then I'm fine. But then I need once or twice I can get out and do things within a, I mean, within game realistic parts of the field and do some things in, I mean, phase of play where I have players in their tactical positions in realistic spaces where, I mean, that requires at least at least half of a field to really be able to do that properly. So it doesn't have to be every practice, but if all you're training is spaces that aren't, don't allow you to create realistic pictures, it's going to limit you tactically. It's it's so funny to hear you describe the way you the way you look at your weekly schedule and your layouts because um, when I used to coach uh, Sunday afternoons were a day where that I knew and even like you know Saturday mornings because most teams they were either going to play a game or they were not going to do anything so you know the weekends either like a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday morning we rarely ever had to f even fight anyone being at a park, for example, you know, the fields were just open. Nothing was there and we could just spread out and do whatever we wanted to do. Um, playing out of the back, you know, any kind of like 
space we needed we 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 could get um but it was just it was funny hearing you describe that because i was like that that's those were always the extra sessions that we ran, um, you know, because uh, you wouldn't get access to that during the week when you're trying to cram all of these teams into, like you said, you know, a sixth of a field. I mean, I've seen fields cut up into 10, sometimes 12, <laughs> you know, where you're just like on top of each other uh, and you got enough space to basically run a rondo or like a little 4v4 small-sided game and that's about it. Um and so, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I love the opportunity when I, you know, when I was coaching, I love that opportunity to kind of spread out, let the kids really see the game, see the field, understand the spacing um, of, you know, whether it's, it's playing out from the back or, you know, transitioning uh, with and without the ball and what that actually looks like if I need to you know, get closer together when our team doesn't have the ball, et cetera. So um, it's just, it was just funny to me while you were talking, uh, just kind of brought up those memories of, of uh, those extra sessions. We would try to squeeze in on the weekends when, when we could find some time. Um, when you're looking at, at setting up a team, um, you know, we talked about your training sessions and kind of why you would like more field space here and there because of your, your personal coaching philosophy. How do you want a team to play? You know, when you're working with your girls DA teams um, at Salvo uh, at SC, what, what what is your coaching philosophy? What what are you trying to instill in these young ladies as like, hey, here's how we want to play. Here's how we want to, you know, be uh, when we are in possession of the ball. You know. And, and where does that influence the, the coaching influences? Where, where do you look for those to inspire you in that coaching philosophy and style of play that you want your teams to, to undertake? Yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm personally really big in the possession based soccer and building out and basically winning in part by having more of the ball than the other team. Uh, that's to say more of the ball while also, playing possession with progression, not just having the ball for the sake of it, but playing forward in possession. Uh, I would say honest answer though, is that this year with, with my teams, I've had to compromise a little bit in that it's the first year of the DA with the club. And I mean, quite frankly, the, I mean, the teams I'm working with, with us just launching and being older age groups and the rule about no high school soccer. And I mean, player poor able to get relative to DA level. I've, we have to try to, sit and be a little bit cagey and counter maybe a little bit more than, than I, I normally do or ever have before, just as a, I mean, as a realistic piece of where we're at. So it's been, it's been really good for me as far as it's been a learning experience and that I've worked more on defending and defending in a little bit of a different way than I have really more. I mean, in a way more than I ever have before. And my sessions have had to be really specific in that regard. So it's made me a better coach, but I would say it's been a little bit of a compromise for my, for my usual style. Usually it's press high and build and keep the ball more than the other team. And just realistically, we're not generally going to have the ball more than the other teams where we are right now. We have to sit a little bit deeper in the limit space and then stay compact and look to counterattack. Uh, but in general, for me, it's, I mean, I'm big on, I run a lot of 4v1s, 4v2s, 3v1s, 4v4 plus threes, a lot of different types of rondos and things like that. And it's as soon as we win the ball, can we quickly connect a pass and expand and 
look to keep it when our keeper gets it. Can we quickly get into our proper spots to spread the field and look to go short and use the keeper as an option and look to build? And so with our lower line of confrontation, I'm using, I am still looking to build and we still do play short and play out when we can, but it's a little bit more counterattacking than usual. I mean, as far as influences, as with anyone that, I mean, really tries to build and possess, I love watching Pep Guardiola teams for obvious reasons. Not that I think I'm Pep Guardiola, but if I can be a fraction as good as he is, I'll be really happy. Uh, I also just really like, I mean, as a, as a motivator, I'm also a big fan of, of Jurgen Klopp. I mean, those two are the ones that I really like watching the most and take the most inspiration from. I mean, as far as the way my team's playing this year, though, it's more of uh, I got to take a little bit more inspiration from Diego Simeone and the way he has his teams play because it's, it's more realistic. And I like like his passion and intensity a lot. So, yeah, for me, it's – I mean, the other piece that people don't talk about enough is that it should be – soccer should be fun. I mean, a big part of my philosophy is that, like, it's work. It should be, it should be serious fun. But if I mean, if your players aren't enjoying themselves, and if you're not playing in a way that they can embrace and have fun with, and if your training sessions aren't fun, if there's not a good dynamic there, then none of the other pieces really matter. When when you're looking at, you know, your team and you're trying to figure out, okay, where are we? How can we kind of design maybe, you know, I, I don't know that I want to use the word compromise your your coaching philosophy, but I, I, th- I think probably a better word would be, you know, to augment or alter it slightly just to, to you know, to be specific to, you know, the group that you have at that moment, while still, you know, you have some principles that you want to uh, stay true to and you want to build to build on and build towards when, you know, when you're assessing a squad and you're, and you're looking at them, um, do you try to find specific roles for players or are you a coach that likes to move players around and, and, Whatever your decision on that, uh, how, however you handle those things, w- what kind of shapes your thought process behind where you play your players on the field? Uh, I think important piece for that is that's all about context. And that if I'm coaching a younger team, which for the last handful of years, because I, I came out as a college coach, that's where I moved out here. So generally, if you're a college coach, you're coaching club, you get, you get put with older teams that are more high school age. But I mean, I've coached younger teams before, and with with those, I mean, if I'm talking U nine or U ten, players play every position, and not not necessarily in the same game. Maybe this week this player's going to train in the back, and this game they're going to play in the back, and the next week they're going to train as a one of the forward two players and play in the forward line, whatever. But throughout the course of the season, they just play every position. You age a little bit older, that's like U nine, U ten, U eleven, U twelve, and you go nines. They should play in at least like maybe two, three, four different spots kind of throughout the course of the season. And again, they're learning how to play different roles. And again, not in a chaotic way where, okay, within this game, you're going to play four different roles. But maybe this week you're going to train this role and play this role. And then next week, but well, they're moving around. Then, yeah, once you start to hit you 13, but especially 15s and up, it should be more, okay, you're going to get really good at these one or two roles. So with me right now, I'm coaching 17s and 19s it's trying to teach players to be really good in one, maybe two specific roles as much as possible and starting to specialize a little bit and teaching them the ins and outs and intricacies of playing in one or two spots. They become really great at those and not mediocre at 
all of them. So I think the context of age and then the, I mean, the, the level of the level of your team and the ability of teams you're playing kind of factors into exactly how, how you shape out and how you're going to play and what your players roles are. And for me, I'm, I'm big on, there are certain pieces and ways that I train teams that are kind of just the core of what I do and will be present throughout. But then at the same time, if I, especially at older ages, depending on what the incentives are, I mean, if I was coaching a U12 team, I'd play the same way no matter what. But with 17s and 19s, I look at my squads, I look at the DA level and go, okay, mine for 17s and 19s, it's still development oriented, but there are importance of result pieces in there. And so I have to augment what I'm doing a little bit. So, okay, how do I develop players? But also how do I push to get the best results I can with my groups? And that influences a little bit how I'm going to play and how I'm going to train. In, in terms of, you know, man management and also, you know, parent management, how important is it? I, I noticed something that, that I see a, uh, a lot of clubs make mistakes on something that you, you brought up when I asked you about, you know, playing players, do you play them in the same position or do you move them around? The mistake that I see, before I get back to the management question, the mistake I see is that, that so often clubs will randomly just play players all over the place. They've not trained there during the week. They've not prepared at all. And and then they'll show up and it's like, Hey, I want you to go in and play this position. Well, I've never trained there. I've never played there. (laughs) And then you come back out for the second half. Hey, I want you to go to the opposite side of the field and I want you to play here. Well, I've never trained or played there either. Um, and, and, and you brought up how you like to train them during the week, prep them for a game. This is the role kind of wear this hat this week, right? Kind of get familiar with this position, this play, this pattern, etc. Um, you know, that's, a, that's something I think is a mistake. A lot of clubs make where the, it, the movement of players, the circulation of players through different roles isn't uh, as well thought out and methodical uh, as it could be. I don't feel like you're setting your players up for success uh, when you're not thinking those things through ahead of time and going, okay, hey, this week I want to take you know these three or four players who may typically play as forwards or maybe you know central attacking midfielders, but this week I want them to really you know get a feel for what it's like to be at a center back position or maybe an outside back position or what have you. Um, And I I really feel like we do a disservice to kids in all of that kind of man management aspect of the game. uh, What I wanted to get back to and ask you was how important is it to you when it comes to communication, how do you handle that with your players? Is that an upfront conversation? Like, Hey, this week I want you to play here. And this, this is what I'm, you know, why I'm wanting to do what I'm doing. And, and do you ever have those conversations and do you feel like it's important to have those conversations with parents as well? Yeah. So I think a lot of it depends again on the ages of the kids. I think if you're coaching a U 12 team, a lot of that's going to then go through parents. If I mean, when I'm coaching my 17s and 19s, a lot of that is with individual players, unless there's some kind of issue, then there might be a conversation with a parent, but a lot of those are more coach to player conversations. But regardless, I do think that those 
those conversations and open communication are important because especially in our, and I mean, the way our soccer system is set up where, I mean, parents are more customers than anything else. I mean, the parents are helping pay the bills. They want to know what they're getting for their service. And so the more open you are about what you're doing and why, the more buy-in you're going to be able to get. And parent buy-in is huge because, again, they're the ones writing the checks and paying the bills. So if they're not knowing what's going on, a lot of times that's the issue. So even if they're well-meaning or a lot of times it's just they just they, they just don't know. Whereas if you're explaining things and you're upfront about your philosophy or why you're doing what you're doing, there's a lot more understanding that goes on. So for me, I think, I mean, being upfront and open with players is huge for me and having players understand what your expectations are of them so that they know what they need to do and they're not just guessing. And when they step into a role on the field, it's clearly defined for them what they're doing and they've experienced it before and they have clear direction because like you said, I've seen for me, a major thing that bothers me as a coach is player blaming where yeah, players share some responsibility and certainly if the player is not doing what they're supposed to be doing as far as like showing up and working hard and paying attention and some of those kind of uh, those kind of intangibles, that's on the player. But if you're just jerking the player around and putting them in different spots and not giving clear direction on what they're supposed to be doing and not training them and then getting mad at them when they flounder and fail, that's on you. And I see a lot of a lot of blaming players in situations where I feel like the coaches actually let them down through improper communication and training to not prepare them for what they're supposed to be doing. When, when you're looking on a macro level, we talked about, you know, your personal playing philosophy, your, your, your style, the way you want to set teams up to play. Uh, and you've used this phrase, you know, game model. Uh, how do you, you know, for maybe there's a young coach out there and they're they're trying to they're trying to figure out okay I want to play a certain way I've got you know I know what it looks like when it's right you know like I can turn on the tv I can watch a Pep Guardiola team let's say play but how do I get my kids to play that game model when you're looking at a a style of play whatever it is whether whether it's some of the the some of the tactical variations you've chosen to adopt with with this year's uh da uh setup where you're like hey I'm, i may be a little bit more like diego simeone uh rather than jurgen klopp or pep guardiola uh at this point but you know this is what i need to do to kind of get results and kind of you know build the program in our first years of da whatever the case is in terms of the long term, the big picture, the 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 game model that you, in terms of the way that you want them to play, how do you go about breaking that into you know a plan or or you know a, a training session to go okay here's here's how I want them to play so here's what here's the activities we're going to do here's the drills or here's the sessions we're going to do in order to achieve that style that game model what what is your process for that yeah so I mean first you'd begin with the end in mind as far as if you don't know what your game model is or what your session objective is or what you want your players in the end to do on the weekend when they play then your training session is going to be random and scattered and not really accomplish anything because what are you working toward? I mean, it's basically like being on a ship without a rudder. So it's okay. I want to get better at 
X, whatever it is. And then it's working backwards. You're going from reality, which is achieving X within the 11 v 11 game. And you're chunking it down into smaller, more clear pieces. So you're going from reality down to clarity. And you're basically, how do I make this as, how do I make this simpler? And how do I create more repetition while minimally sacrificing reality? So if I want to get better at this specific action in midfield with my seven, nine, 10 and eight, maybe you're going to chunk that down into a four V four activity on the right side of the field in the middle third and work on those player actions within that part of the field with just that specific group of players. So, okay, you're sacrificing some reality because it's not the 11 V 11 game. You're not working in the entire field, but it's a lot simpler. It's a lot clear and you're getting a lot more repetition. And then you build from there towards the 11 v 11 game and through more complex activities until you're playing 11 v 11. So it's identifying what are the player actions I want to create? What are the situations that I want to create? And what pictures do I want to create for players to experience? How do I make them more clear? How do I create repetition through activity design? So, okay, what does my space need to be? Where do the balls need to restart? What needs to be the, the trigger for the activity to start? Uh, what does my periodization need to be physically? So the work to rest ratio is proper. And I'm not, destroying the players so they're exhausted while they're doing it and you just have to consider those pieces and build a session around what are the desired actions that you want to see and then mimic those as closely as possible within the session so that the session is reality based and is creating repetition for players to experience the scenarios that you want them to experience within the 11 v 11 game so you can teach them the proper behavior when you're going through that process and then you're explaining this out to your players and you're you're laying out, okay, hey, here's our game model and here's maybe a session that we're going to run uh, to, to help us prepare to learn a certain way. How well in those moments are are the players able to pick up on those things? Is it is it complicated or do you, do you see that they're relatively, you know, quick studies in those moments? It honestly varies heavily player to player. Uh, I mean, this is my first year working with this. I mean, the group that I have, and I mean, I can just tell that they, they all come from different backgrounds and we got them from different places and they have had different levels of coaching and experiences. I can tell there are some that, I mean, when I tell them something or show them something, they immediately pick up on it quickly. And I know I mean, it's identifying who those kids are. I mean, that's a big piece of coaching. There's some of my ones that are a little bit maybe more experienced or have a little bit more between the ears soccer-wise that simply explaining a situation and telling them is enough, and they're going to be able to pick it up. Then there are other ones that I have to show and explain in detail and know that I have to do that for them to be able to grasp maybe the same concept the other player was more, more easily. And that's, I mean, that's what coaching is. And so it's knowing your players and what they require. And yeah, some players, it might be as simple as, hey, I want you to do this. Okay, got it, coach. And they really do get it. And then you got to check for understanding and really see if they get it and watch their behavior and see if they do it. But there's some that are able to do that or, okay, you show them once and then, okay, got it. There are other ones that you have to pound it over and over and over and maybe show it a little bit more clearly or in a different way. And you just have to figure out how, how each player learns best and what they really need to be successful. And I mean, that's what your job as a coach is to help your players. How important is it to you as a coach personally 
because, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the clip from this weekend, uh, last second, uh, you know, Liverpool wins over Leicester. They go eight points clear of Man City and, uh, Man City has this shock loss uh, on Sunday um, against Wolves and lose 2-0. And, and so the gap, you know, instead of it being five, is now eight between Liverpool and Man City at the top of the Premier League. But I, I was it was curious in all that. Like, did you, did you see the clip of Jurgen Klopp after the match, just like the fist pumps to the crowd, and they're like in concert, like celebrating with every fist pump and like the camaraderie. I mean, to me, I, I think Pep Guardiola is the greatest tactician in the world. I think he's the best manager in the world, uh, you know, top to bottom. But I don't know that you could say that there is a better leader who is a manager in the world right now. I mean, just to see what Jurgen Klopp is doing uh, in Liverpool is, is special. Um, and you know, how important is it for you as a manager, uh, a coach of your team to build that sense of camaraderie and togetherness and, you know, sense of purpose and unity um, when when you are developing your players, but but develop developing them as a squad and as a team? Oh, hugely important. I mean, I think I think I probably stole it from Tom Byer, actually. Uh, for those who are familiar with him, the phrase that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that, don't get me wrong, technique and tactics and those pieces are super important. But if you don't have that cultural piece, if you don't have that buy-in and that camaraderie and that kind of uh, that kind of leadership, none of those other pieces are going to matter. I think, uh, I mean, one phrase I saw that I really like that describes soccer is that soccer's half a game and half a war. And if you want to be able to play the game, you have to fight the war. And so if you don't, if you don't have those cultural pieces and I mean, the intensity when you step on the field and that buy-in and that purpose that drives everything you do in training and in the game, you don't have that why for why you're training and why you're playing, then the quality of, even if your sessions are the best sessions ever, you're the best tactician ever, you can't relate to the players on that level. None of that stuff is going to matter. How do you build that? How do you as a coach build that, that sense of togetherness, that, that ability to, to overcome or to fight through adversity and get to the other side as a coach, what are you doing to, to try to create that sense of culture and environment with your, with your club, your teams? I mean, a big piece is personal relationships. So, I mean, you have to be able to relate to your players and get to know them as people off the field where, I mean, it's corny, but it's the old adage of they don't care what you know until they know you care. And so, again, you can be the, I mean, if, my, if you're running the best practices ever, you're the best tactician, but your players don't don't relate to you on a personal level or don't think you care about them, then they're, they're not going to care what you know. So building, learning about each player, holding individual meetings, learning about what their ambitions are on and off the field, who they are as a person. And I mean, what makes them, them will help build that coach player relationship and help with, I mean, buying with the individuals. The other piece is on more of a, more of a macro level is that you need to have a why behind what you're doing. When I say a why behind what you're doing, I mean, part of it can include play style and identity. So this is the way we play and this is what our identity is. So maybe it's all right, we're not the best team, but we're going to sit in our block and we're going to be super gritty and we're going to fight and we're going to battle and that's who we are, kind of what Diego Simeone does. Or maybe it's Pep Guardiola, okay, no, we're going to play 
beautiful soccer and results can be a byproduct of that. And this is, we're going to build out of the back and have 90% possession and entertain the fans, whatever it is, you have a specific identity for players to buy into. And then the other piece is off the field. I mean, you look at, and this kind of transitions into things I know that we've talked about before with, with what, I mean, basically what the soccer system is here versus what it is in other parts of the world. What are, what are you playing for and training for and what are you a part of off the field? What is your, what does your club or your team stand for? What are your, what are your principles that, I mean, are holistic as far as maybe it's reflecting your play style, but how you, how you play feeds into a bigger part of, of who you are and what you're representing. And if you can get, you can get players to buy into your personal relationship with them and that you really care and are there for them. And then, okay, as holistically as a group, this is our why, this is why we are playing. And it goes beyond just kicking a ball. It, you can get to another level. Um, last question. Well, second to last question for you. Last, last main question before I, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna kind of uh, set you up for a kind of a mac big macro big picture kind of uh, final parting question for you. But my last main question, picking up on on that specifically, you talked about the you know the system around the world versus where we are. Um, how, how much do you think that the U.S. soccer system? The way that it is, it's you know heavily reliant on uh, families paying the bills, the pay-to-play system. It's much maligned, um, and and certainly you know at the very least, very different from what you see around the world. How much does the system influence or affect? Even the grassroots level, the DA, the 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 the, the pay to play travel teams, e- even into your community clubs uh, around the country. How much do you think the system has an effect on all of those different levels of of American soccer? It's absolutely massive because the problem is right now there's there's no incentive in the United States to develop players your incentive is to collect registration fees and register as many players as possible. So therefore, based on the incentives being that, that's what the, that's what the demographic is and what the mission is of, of clubs around the country is it's not about sporting excellence. It's about growing as big as possible. And it's about numbers. So that's reflected in the demographics of our players and their upbringing and the way that, they're taught to play. They're taught to play in a way to get results at an early age because for clubs around the country, your incentive is that you win at young age to attract more players into your club. It's not to develop professional players. The only clubs or teams that now have an incentive of fiscal incentive to develop players are MLS academies, which is only a handful across the entire country. Everyone else sits, win games at a young age to attract more players and collect more registration fees and post on your website that you won state cup at U 12. So that piece, as far as the fiscal incentives, it, I mean, our demographics for soccer across this country is it's largely white and suburban. And that affects the culture of the clubs across the country. And those that play soccer and have the opportunities is it's the white suburban culture that is, the most prominent because that's where that's what the clubs are catered to. They're catered to picking up those registration fees from those families that can afford it. 
So my last question, my big picture macro question, uh, it's one I like to do every now and then with guests, and I'm going to do it with you, which is this. If you were king of American soccer for a day and you could do anything with your day in charge of American soccer, what would you do? Uh, create a functional pyramid and implement promotion relegation immediately. Well, I love the the precise and succinct answer uh, that you gave. I'm in I'm in full agreement. I, I think there people don't understand. You know, I, I had a conversation the other day um, with someone about the fact of the how much uh, going back to to the previous question. The system has an influence and effect on their reality their day-to-day you know grassroots soccer life uh, they didn't even know you know the about u.s soccer and the sanctioning process you know at the grassroots level there's there's so much it's just unknown to the public and how much what what your answer about what you would do with your day in charge actually um, has is so important and has a massive influence uh, on their day to day soccer experience. So uh, I love your I love your succinct answer. It, it might be the quickest, shortest solution answer uh, given out to that question so far. And um, if I had a a uh, an award to pass out for for you know for the golden answer. Um, you would have certainly won it. <laughs> that was a great. That was a great answer, and um, and and I thought it was spot on. Uh, how could people uh, c- connect with you, catch up with you on social media, maybe to pick your brain? Maybe there's a coach out there that uh, you know wants to learn more about how you do what you do because they heard some of the things you talked about on the show today, and uh, and 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 want to you know pick your brain and say, hey, hey, what are you doing? How, how can I get better? I want to learn from you how could they do that online uh or on social media yeah no problem so my twitter is at jeremy score sorry at jeremy underscore handler j-e-r-e-m-y underscore h-a-n-d-l-e-r uh my email for anyone if anyone want to email me it'd be jhandler at salvosoccer.org that's a-l-v-o soccer.org and yeah, I'm more than happy to connect with anyone that uh, that wants to. And I'm always open about about what I do, and always open to share ideas and connect with people. So no issues there. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you coming on the show and spending some time with us, uh, walking us through kind of personal coaching philosophy, all those things. Um, and and I really uh, really got a lot out of of hearing you break down certain things. And I think there's some coaches out there uh, all across the country that are looking for for hope and for answers and for ideas, etc. And and I appreciate you coming on the show and spending some time with us. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That is Jeremy Handler. He's an assistant coach with uh, Minneapolis City SC and a girls DA coach with Salvo SC. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. 
And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. to thank Jeremy Handler for joining us uh, this morning to kick off our week. Thanks to him talking uh, coaching, development, setting up teams. You know, one of the big things as you look at the landscape of coaching that's not talked about enough, and I think it's one of the things that we were talking about earlier in the show that, that I think stands out for Jill Ellis' tenure as the head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team is leadership. And um, I don't know that there's a better leader managing today than Jurgen Klopp. You want to see what it's like to lead a movement, to lead a city, to lead a club, going beyond just the players, an entire community. Watch what he's doing. Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. It is impressive, it is outstanding. And when you have a leader, a good leader, who can lead and do so much, you can accomplish incredible things. Thanks for tuning in today. As always, you can watch the show at facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. We'll see you tomorrow.